Hey, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you, Lord, uh, for the worship and just how meaningful that was to me and how I needed to meet with you in that way this morning. Um, thank you that we can worship together. And God, as we look into the Word today, God, it is a, a heavy topic. Um, and I pray, especially this morning, that you would give me an extra measure of grace as we talk about this, um, and that my words would be your words. God, help me to be faithful to the Scriptures, faithful to the things that you say. And uh, God, help us to understand how what we're talking about today uh, does deal with our everyday lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're continuing our series this morning, and it's titled um, The Great Beyond. And over the course of this series, we're talking about what happens after we die. And actually, next week, we're going to talk about the end of the world and end time stuff. Um, But we're in this series, and what we've talked about, the theme throughout this series is this statement, is what I believe about eternity determines how I live today. So what I believe about what happens after I die or eternity, that affects how I live my life today. And so last week was awesome. If you were here, um, great. If you missed it, pick it up. But Keith talked about heaven and how heaven will be this place where there's no more tears, there's no more crying, there's no more pain, there's no more loneliness, there's no more addictions, there's no more depression, there's no more all the junk that's in this world, there is no more of that in heaven because it is a new heaven and a new earth and we are new creations made new, fully new, fully perfect, fully glorified in heaven. I talked about that last week. If I were to sum up last week's message in one word in heaven, it would be awesome. If I were to sum up the message this week in one word, it would be difficult. Because today we're talking about the doctrine of hell. And that is not an easy topic. It's not an easy thing to get our heads around. And it's one of those topics where, honestly, at the beginning, I I use the word difficult, but but honestly, like at the beginning of the week, I was kind of dreading this message. And and like, this is just a hard message. I don't want to give it who picked this, all that kind of stuff. Um, But then... As the week went on, I realized, and just as I did my own study, that this is really helpful. Because I think the doctrine of hell and our understanding of hell is just hard to grasp, but I wrestled with the scriptures and worked through a bunch of stuff this week. And my hope is that I can share this with you in a way that makes sense for you, and that you would look at this and say, that was a hard message, but really helpful in helping me to understand what hell is all about. Now, if you, you know, sometimes when I talk to people about River Ridge and they say, hey, I like River Ridge, and oftentimes people will talk about the messages here. They say, I really like the messages here because it's not a hellfire damnation kind of church, right? And, and the thing is, like people talk about a, a fire and brimstone church, and I don't think that I've ever been to a fire and brimstone church so far as I can remember. But as, I, as people have talked to me about a, a fire and brimstone church, I kind of get an idea of what it's about. And, and this, you know, that it's, it's this idea that everything is sort of about hell. You know, it's like the pastor or the preacher gets up there and he goes, well, you're going to hell if you smoke tobacco, and you're going to hell if you drink, and you're going to hell if you look at a woman lustful, and you're going to hell for not giving enough money, and you're going to hell for not voting right, and whoo, let me bring out my hanky and... That's what I picture it as. I don't know. I've never been, um, 
But that's kind of my picture of a hellfire and brimstone church. <laughs> However, this morning, uh, we are not going to become a hellfire and brimstone church, but we are going to take an honest look at the doctrine of hell. And, you know, it's interesting. Hell is one of those things, and the topic of it is one that just we're uncomfortable with, and it's sometimes easier to avoid because that's kind of what we do as humans. Often we just avoid what we don't want to talk about. And I love what C.S. Lewis said about hell, uh, and it really resonates with me. It says this. It says, there's no other doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this if it lay in my power. But it has the full support of Scripture and especially of our Lord's own words. He wrote that in a book called The Problem of Pain. You see, we're going to talk about hell this morning for two reasons. One is because Jesus talked about it. 33 different times Jesus talked about hell. That's a lot of time. As a matter of fact, if you think about it, Jesus' ministry on earth, his public ministry, was about three years, 36 months. 33 times he talks about hell. That means he was talking about hell on average about once a month. And so Jesus talked about it, and so we're going to talk about it. And Jesus talked about it with that amount of frequency because he didn't want anybody to end up there. That that's why he came. He came to die for our sins so that no one would have to go to hell, and so he talked about it. But we're also going to talk about it for that reason, but also because of this bottom line, this theme throughout this series of what we believe about eternity determines how we will live today. And if we have a better understanding of hell, then that will help us to understand how God wants us to live today. And there's all kinds of questions that we have about hell, you know, how hot is hell and who goes there and, um, you know, why does God send people there? And there's all these different questions about is it fair to punish people there and, you know, why doesn't God just forgive everybody? And there's all these questions that we have swirling in our heads about hell. And, and And there are so many questions. We could probably spend three hours talking about hell this morning, but that would be a version of hell, of hearing about hell for a three-hour sermon, I think. So we're not going to do that. But what I do want to do is I want to look at four questions this morning, and we're going to answer these four questions, and I'm going to give you two up front. What is hell like? How could a loving God send someone to hell? Will those who have never heard of Jesus end up in hell? And how does hell impact my life? So we're going to wrestle with those four questions I put them on your outline. If you want to download the Riverage app, they're on there as well. Um, but I also um, put on there, uh, on the outline and in the app, I put a whole bunch of scriptures, a whole bunch of Bible passages, and those are all the scriptures that I'm going to go through today because I really want more than anything for us to understand that our understanding of hell comes from what God says. I don't want our understanding of hell to come from what Matt thinks or this person or that person or this church. I want us to take our understanding of what is hell from what God says about hell and and speak no more or no less than what it says. So we're going to begin in Luke chapter 16. So if you brought a Bible, we're in Luke chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen behind me, or you can uh, click to a Bible in the River Ridge app. But this is Luke chapter 16, and I'm going to begin in verse 19. And Jesus is speaking. It says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. 
And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So Jesus speaks about two people here. One, he says, is a rich man. He doesn't give him a name, uh, but he says he's rich. And he also talks about in here, there's language that we may not necessarily get as 21st century people, but the people that were listening to Jesus got this absolutely right away about how wealthy this guy was. It says that he was clothed in purple. That was a sign of wealth at the time because the purple dye was more expensive to get and to make clothing out of. And it says that he was dressed in fine linen, again, more expensive than other clothing. And it said he feasted sumptuously every day. So he had more than enough food to eat three meals a day and to eat very well. And that wasn't all that common at the time. And so this was an incredibly rich man. And then Jesus contrasts him with a man who has a name named Lazarus. It says that Lazarus was poor, and he was so poor that he desired to be fed with whatever the leftover scraps were from the rich man's table. And he, so he was outside of his gate. And then it says this. It says, The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. So it talks about in this story how much anguish he's in. He says, if, if you could just have Lazarus dip, like not, I don't even a cup of water. I don't even need like a scoop of water or just a finger of water. Just the tip of his finger, dip it in water, and then bring that over to me. That would be so refreshing. Could you do that? He's in complete anguish. Then it says this in verse 25. It says, But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in, manner, in like manner bad things. And now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Let me read that again in verse 26. A great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. See, Jesus is making this point in this story. And, and by the way, some people look at this and say this is a real story that um, happened and there's a real person named Lazarus and a, and a rich man. And other people say this is a parable. And, and bright people kind of disagree whether it's a parable or whether it's a true story. But regardless, Jesus told it. And so we know it's true in terms of the principles that we can take from it. But it says there was a great chasm has been fixed. So what that means is where you end up in heaven or in hell... That is fixed. Once you die, that has been decided. There is no crossing over from one direction to the other or the other direction to the other. You don't start in heaven and do something wrong and go to hell, and you don't do start in hell and then go to heaven. A fixed divide has been created. And that's helpful to know because there's a number of errant views of this that help, and this kind of dispels those teachings. One is that there are some people who teach that there's a purgatory, that people spend time in a hell of sorts, and then once you've done your time, once you've kind of worked off, and depending how bad you are, you stay there longer or less time, and then you kind of get into heaven eventually. This 
talks about that in the sense of there's a chasm, a great divide, and you can't go from here to there. There's a, there's a text that's sometimes cited for purgatory, and it says, Thus he made atonement for the dead, that they might be freed from sin. Which doesn't really speak about purgatory, so it's sort of a weak argument, but people kind of use that and say, well, that's what purgatory is about, is atonement for sin after death. Um, but the problem with that is that it actually doesn't come from the Bible. It comes from a book called Maccabees, which is a Jewish history book that was written between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, the chasm between heaven and hell is fixed. There was a writer and author named Rob Bell uh, who a number of years ago published a book and it was called Love Wins. And he tried to argue that after you die that you get this sort of second chance to say yes to God. Um, but again, we look at this and say there's a great chasm and you can't cross from one to the other. You know, and there would also be some people who, again, uh, wrongly would say or poor theology would say well, everybody ends up in heaven. Everybody eventually goes to heaven. It's called universal salvation. Everybody ultimately gets saved. But the problem is that Jesus said something different. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 7. He said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Jesus said there will be some in heaven and there will be some that will be on the road to destruction. Which one will you choose? Then it continues on back in Luke chapter 20, uh, 16, verse 27. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send them to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they may, so he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And it's an interesting passage, especially with us as we look in hindsight looking back at that. That Jesus was clearly referring to himself in that. So Lazarus, or excuse me, the, the rich man is saying, well, send Lazarus to my brothers so that they know the truth about this place, so they don't have to come here. And Abraham says back to him, even if somebody were to rise from the dead, they wouldn't believe. It's a, it's a reference to Jesus. We had the prophets, we have Moses, we have the Old Testament, and we have Jesus rising from the dead. And even though Jesus rose from the dead, there are people who do not believe in him. You know, we look at this passage and we can discern some things about hell. And there's lots of different kind of questions about hell in terms of, you know, what is it and, and, and are there people there? You know, sometimes people will say, well, I don't mind going to hell. All my friends will be there. Well, there's this sense of, I haven't said that, but, you know, there's this sense of, you know, of loneliness, of darkness, of this, and, and there's the fire. And so we don't know exactly what it looks like. There's a couple different pictures and portraits but here's what we do know for sure. That in heaven, or excuse me, in hell, there is no God, and therefore there is nothing good. There's no joy, there's no peace, there's no comfort, there's no fellowship, there's nothing that is good in this earth that will continue into hell. All that is good will reside with God 
in heaven. Let's go to the second question, which is this. How could a loving God send someone to hell? How could a loving God send someone to hell? Now, we're going to answer this question, but it helps to understand this is kind of a loaded question because there's two kind of parts of this question which make it sort of a loaded question or not even a fair question, or not an accurate question. The first is this, is describing God as loving. How could a loving God, as though that's the only characteristic of God? You see, God has many characteristics. God is known for a lot of different things besides being a loving God. Listen to what it says, this description of God in Psalm 89. It says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. So we look at this verse and we see what is God and in the fullness of his character. He's righteous. He has justice. He has steadfast love. And he is faithful. He is all of those things. And so the the proper way to ask this question, if we want to ask this question, is not how could a loving God send someone to hell, but the question is how could a loving, righteous, just, fair, and faithful God send people to hell? But here's the second error. Oh, excuse me. Let me give a couple examples here. This idea of being loving and just. So we go, well, can you be both? How does God, how is God both? And the fact is that we see that in our society every day. If you think about a judge, right, a judge is loving, but a judge also hands out punishment, right? So a loving judge can sentence somebody to life in prison or to this many years or whatever it is, but you can be loving and also administrate justice, and that's what God does. I would like to think perhaps wrongly, but I would like to think that in the Santa family, that Stacy and I, as we administer our family, that we have both love and justice in our family. So, for example, let's suppose that one of our children was driving his car or her car at an excessive rate of speed, right? And that child got pulled over by a policeman and got a ticket, right? And so he or she comes back and says, hey, I got a ticket. And so we would look at that child and say to him or her, um, you have to pay the fine, but we are also going to take away your car for the next two months, right? In doing that, we would be both loving and just and fair, would we not? And so those two can exist side by side. But the question here, and again, there's, another, there's part of this question, how can a loving God send someone to hell? That's a misrepresentation in the question itself. And the error is in the word hell. Um, Here is God's heart on hell. God doesn't send people to hell. Listen to what this says. It says, This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And then it also says this in 2 Peter 3, 9. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see, we need to understand that this says that God wants all people to be saved. He wants every one of you to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. 
He wants every person in the world to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He says that they might come to a knowledge of the truth. And even says that God is, is kind of holding back on returning to the earth to give more and more people the opportunity to receive Christ. See, God pursues you relentlessly. He sent Jesus to die on the cross for you because he wants to be in a relationship with you. He puts touches of the Holy Spirit on us and nods us and, and prompts us that we might respond. He puts things and people in our lives that we would come to know him. God does what he does so that we would come to a knowledge of him. And so I say that because God doesn't send people to hell. God allows people to choose hell. That God allows that, and that's part of who he is in his character. He doesn't force anybody to make a choice that they don't want to make. He gives people that opportunity. You know, it's interesting, if you look back at the story of Lazarus and the rich man, and the rich man asks some questions of Abraham, and he, he kind of makes some requests. One of his requests is he says, uh, would you send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger and cool, come and cool my tongue? He also says, would you send Lazarus to my five brothers and warn them about the torment in this place? But you know what he doesn't say? What you don't hear him ask is, well, it's not fair. Why would you send me here? Because I don't deserve to be here. Never in all this conversation does he ever cry, not fair, unfair, you're unjust. He doesn't do that. You see, the rich man recognizes that he has what he deserves, that he is spending eternity in the choices that he has made. You see, what happens in the next life, what happens in eternity, is we get more of what we want in this life. So if you want God, if you want as much of God as you can possibly have, you can get as much as you can in this life, and you're going to have all that you want of God in the next life. But if you don't want to have anything to do with God, and you want to live your own way and make your own choices and say, I don't want anything to do with God, then you get that in the next life as well, in the ultimate way of separation from God. You get nothing of God and everything that you want for yourself. Now, you might ask the question, why does God give us a choice? Why doesn't God just say, everybody will love me? And it's because love cannot be forced on anybody. Otherwise, it's not love. If you have to, then there's no choice. If you have to love them, there's no choice. I'll give you a kind of a simple but odd analogy. You know, if you take your dishes, put your dishes in the dishwasher, right, and you push the little button and the dishes get clean and then you open it up an hour later and the dishes are clean, you don't say to the dishwasher, we have such a loving relationship. You loved me so much that you washed my dishes. Thank you. You wouldn't say that to your dishwasher, would you? Because the dishwasher is just doing what it's programmed to do. It's a machine. It's a computer. You push the button, it does the thing, out come the dishes. I don't know how that works, but it's pretty awesome, right? But your dishwasher, I hate to tell you, your dishwasher doesn't love you. It just does what you tell it to do, right? There's no love there. However, if your husband washes the dishes, well, then he loves you, right? Or your kids or your wife. Because it's a choice that he or she or the kids make as an expression of love. 
And so the same is true when it comes to us and God. God isn't going to force anybody to choose him. He's going to make himself available, but he doesn't force anybody to choose him. I love what C.S. Lewis says about this. Uh, he says this. He says, There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. So believers who say, God, your will be done. That's one type of person. And those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. So he tells people, What you want, I will give you. All that are in hell, choose it. All that are in hell, choose they want their own will to be done. Without the, that choice, there is or there could be no hell. So we ask this question, how could a loving God send someone to hell? He doesn't. Everyone who is there chooses to be there from their rejection of God. Now, that leads us to the third question of what about those who have never heard? What about those who have never heard of Jesus? They live in a jungle in Africa or some country over there or whatever. What about them? It, it, and we kind of say, well, is that fair for God to send those people to hell or for those people to choose hell because, or those people to end up in hell because they didn't have a choice because they were born in the wrong country or born in the wrong culture or born at the wrong time? Is that fair of God? What about those who have never heard? And, you know, there's part of that question um, that's kind of a bogus question that, that I've had conversations with people will ask that. And it's, if you're asking that question, what about those people? Well, then you have heard and you are without excuse. But there's a, a legitimate side to that question as well because it goes to the character of God. We go, do I want to be in a relationship with a God who's going to have somebody go to hell just because they didn't hear about Jesus or just because they were born in the wrong culture or the wrong country? Do I want a relationship with that sort of God? And again, it's very similar to the second question that we talked about is that we lean on the character of God, that God is fair and that God is just. I want us to look up a passage. This is Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. It says this. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his universal attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made, so they are without excuse." So it's talking about that the, what the ungodly do is that it says they can see that there's a God from creation. You can look at the sun and the stars and the birds and the rising and setting the sun. You can look at life and say, there is a creator who made all of this. But those who are unrighteous, those who don't want anything to do with God go, nope, I don't think so. I'm in charge of my universe. I'm in charge of my world. And they don't acknowledge a creator. And then Jesus said this in Matthew 7. He said, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, it will be open. It says that those who ask and those who knock and those who seek, if you seek after God, he will make himself known to you. And so we put these two verses together 
And we come to this understanding that if people see and people can see, they're without excuse, people see in creation that there is a God, and then they seek after finding that God, that God will reveal himself to them. Now, how that works out and what God reveals to them, I don't know. I mean, I've heard stories of people in, in countries where there is no Christian witness at all, and they begin to pray, and they see that there's a God, and that God will appear in a dream, or they begin to pray, and they begin to seek God. They don't understand God. They don't understand the God of the Bible, but they seek him, and then a missionary comes to that town or that village. There are stories like that. How God works that out exactly, I don't know. But what we can rest on is that God is just and that God is fair and that there will be no one in hell who says, unfair, I got gypped, I got ripped off, I shouldn't be here. That it will be clear to all that all of us get the choice that we make of choosing God and his son Jesus or rejecting that. Brings us to the final question. Is how does hell impact my life? How does hell impact my life? And this comes back to the original theme throughout this whole series of what I believe about eternity determines how I will live today. And I would encourage you, if you're here this morning and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that you would make that profession of faith this morning. If you're here and you're talking about hell and you're like, I think I might be going there because I've never received Christ, I encourage you to make that decision this morning to say, I place my faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins so that I know that I can spend eternity in heaven with God, with all things good, opposed to separated from God in the torment of hell. But I would also challenge us with this as well for all of us, is how do we think about other people? Because everybody spends eternity somewhere. Everybody spends eternity in heaven or in hell. And if what we believe about eternity, that there is an actual hell and that people will go there, it changes how we live our lives. That we look at our friends and we look at our family members and we look at the people that we work with and we look at the people that we do different stuff with that we interact with and we see them as people who will spend eternity somewhere. And I don't know about you, but I don't want people that I know to spend eternity in hell. And so I want to be part of bringing them the good news. And I would challenge you to do the same thing, that you would give your life to helping people find Jesus Christ and find eternity in heaven instead of separation from God in hell. I want to close with one final story. And it's, um, there's a movie that came out, gosh, probably 25 years ago or more. It was called Schindler's List. And, uh, and it, the, basically the, the gist of this movie was that there was this guy in Nazi Germany named Oskar Schindler, and he was a German, um, but he wanted to rescue the Jews. He recognized that what Hitler was doing in killing the Jews was awful and wrong, and so what he did is he went to, uh, there was a train of Jews that were leaving to go to a concentration camp where they would ultimately be killed. And he went to the commander of this kind of group, this uh, train or this regiment, and he said, I want to buy... Jews, because I'm opening an ammunitions factory to produce bullets. I'm opening an ammunition factory, and I need people to work in it. Can I buy them from you? And so Schindler's List, the name of the movie, is there was about 850 Jews on this list that he bought 
and had work in his factory. And so he put him to work in his factory. And uh, it's, there's, there's a sort of a funny scene in the movie where they're talking about the, the bullets and they don't work. And Oscar Schindler goes, good, I don't want any bullet from this ammunition factory to ever work in a gun. And so they intentionally made them bigger or smaller or longer or shorter so they would misfire in the guns, right? But there's a scene at the end of the movie where Oscar Schindler is um, getting ready to leave in his car. And he has this moment of remorse. He has this moment of remorse, and he says, I could have done more, because he paid for every Jew that was in his factory, and he rescued all of those Jews from the um, concentration camp. But he looks at his car. He says, this car could have bought eight more Jews. And he looks at some of the jewelry. This could have bought two more. And he looks around and he says, I could have done more. I could have done more. And I would challenge us with that same question, that same thought, is I don't want us to live and then get towards the end of our lives and say, I wish I'd done more. I wish I'd done more for the cause of Christ. I wish that I had done more to help people find Christ and find heaven instead of end up in hell. And I would challenge you and encourage you with your life. Is your life geared and centered around the things that God wants you to do of his plan? Because he says it's God's desire that none should perish. And that's our desire as well. And are you a part of God's redeeming work on this earth? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. God, it's a heavy topic, and I pray, God, that you would help us to deal with it in our hearts and to continue to process this. But God, we know that you are a loving and just and fair God. And we don't always understand all this stuff, but God, we know that you have called us to reach our community with the gospel of Christ so that as many people as we can affect can spend eternity with you. In Jesus' name, amen.